Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. I'll be your host tonight. Here at What's the Res, we are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. We, of course, are all about competing in that world, and uh, normally we're helping you get ready for that with resolution analysis or expert interviews. Tonight is going to be a different sort of episode where I want to speak with one of the leaders in the world of speech and debate on a national level. My guest this episode is Adam Jacoby. Adam is the executive director of the Wisconsin High School Forensic Association. He's a member of the board of directors of the National Speech and Debate Association. He serves as the Section 4 representative to the Speech, Debate, and Theater Committee of the National Federation of State High School Associations. He also uh, consults on high school outreach initiatives for the Harvard Debate Council and Emory University's Barclay Forum for Debate, Deliberation, and Dialogue. Adam, welcome to What's the Res? Thank you, Josh. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you were willing to say yes to a random Facebook message request to, hey, come on the show. Uh, I, I appreciated seeing your work as we were at the, uh, my team was competing at Harvard for the first time this year, and uh, I had two girls in uh, in congressional debates, so they got to see what congressional looks like on that level, and I know you had a big role in that, so thank you for the work that you put in on that event. My pleasure. Well, Adam, uh, uh, I was reading your bio a few weeks ago, and I was kind of amazed at the number of organizations that you're part of. Part of. You've clearly been involved in speech and debate for a long time. Tell us a bit about your story. How did you get involved in this activity, and why do you think this activity is worth spending your career in? Sure. Well, I, I kind of, uh, like I like to say, fell on the doorstep of the activity quite accidentally. Uh, in middle school, we had um, this homeroom program where my homeroom teacher was trying to create kind of a de facto service club within our homeroom. So um, kind of like a, a Rotary or Kiwanis club for little middle schoolers. And so she came up with creative ideas for service projects, because you can imagine for 30 some kids coming up with ideas of things that needed to be done um, was, you know, a bit of a challenge at times. And the project that she came up with for me was doing the public address announcements at the school. At the time, one of the office secretaries was doing it. You could tell she was uncomfortable with it. Uh, I had never done anything like that, but she said, you have kind of this deep, robust voice. Why don't you go give it a try? And so I did. And the very next day, a bunch of my friends came up to me and they're like, Adam, Mr. Davis wants to talk to you. And at the time, I was in chorus and was wondering why the big, scary band teacher wanted to see me. Uh, a towering man who must have been 6'6", six, six, um, just just a very uh, intimidating presence in general, especially for a middle schooler. And he literally shoved Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address in my hands and said, you're performing this this weekend. Um, it's, it's in a category called Declamation. And and the rest, as they say, is history. And, and I kind of got hooked. Uh, I'll never forget how terrified I was when I performed it the first time. And there was this judge in the room who just had the most affirming body language to this day I've seen in a judge where she was just nodding and her eyes were wide as saucers. I could tell she just wanted to hear what I said. 
And that's why I always tell judges when I when I do any kind of training or orientation that they can be a make or break moment for that kid who's new to the activity um, in terms of how encouraging they are and and how what kind of experience they create for that kid. So um, and, you know, it's 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 kind of funny because I grew up in a modest working class neighborhood of Milwaukee. Um, I went to schools that um, when I was still in school were still being racially integrated. Uh, so while I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, um, there weren't a lot of uh, school age uh, kids my age in, in the neighborhood. So we had a lot of students from other parts of town and Milwaukee remains to this day, unfortunately, one of the most segregated cities in the country. Um, but but we had kids bust in from other neighborhoods. So my classes were majority black. Um, many of my teachers were black, so my worldview to this day was formulated by that influence. And, and even my first forensic speech coach, Mr. Davis, in middle school um, was a black man. So that has very much influenced how I think about society, how I think about um, the activity in general from that worldview. That is fascinating. And uh, I... I find that encouraging on a lot of levels. Uh, one of them being that uh, I, I've, I've been this year, one of the ways we expanded our program at Thales Academy was through a middle school speech and debate club. Uh, we didn't have the room in the curriculum to make it its own class, uh, but we did start an after school club. And I found a variety of kids, uh, uh, levels of engagement were very different. Some kids, they just wanted to hang out. And if they have to talk competitively, that's fine. But then I had a few kids who just seemed to get hooked, and they love this stuff. So uh, that that's fascinating thing about where they might be uh, in part because that there's something about when they when you start this in middle school and you can kind of develop those skills all the way through. Uh, that that's kind of amazing, and that's now the, your <coughs> initial context in Milwaukee is really interesting because there's, I mean that that has been. I mean that those are those are perennial questions I think that students are drawn to for speech and for debate topics. I mean, um, I was watching rounds from the the TOC that just finished, and uh, we didn't have anybody in the TOC this year. I'm kind of hoping a few years down the road we might pick up some bids to get there. But I was intrigued. I was uh, I was looking for dramatic interp videos. I couldn't find them, so I'm having my interp kids watch poi videos instead. Mm -hmm. And the amount of the number of students who chose to kind of go to their own personal ethnic identity as a source, they, they didn't usually stay there. But uh, I was fascinated by how many students kind of reflected on this. I've had some version of this experience. And usually the, the literature that they're citing is much more dramatic than their own experience. But they have some version of that that they've lived through. And it becomes very interesting as kind of a, a a font for students to tell their stories and understand different struggles that other people have experienced. Yeah, and I and I think we see this in the debate events too. Uh, you know, when when students particularly run critical arguments and and um, the the politics and and whatnot of identity become. Uh, present in the round, and and the students are speaking from from their own uh, worldview. I, I think that's that's really empowering, um, but it, it does create a bit of a thorny landscape for the students who don't come from that background. They, they, they don't always have the understanding, and so I think that's when it becomes particularly important for kids 
to be ready to listen and process and figure out what does that mean for them and, and how can they relate to it? Let me press on that for just a moment then. Cause that's, uh, I've sat in rounds before where uh, it seems that when you have students of two different backgrounds and one student speaks from his background, it seems to remove a bit of the ground for the other students to really refute that argument. What would you say to that? Is that, is there a good way to kind of navigate those waters or yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that kind of situation? I think in all things, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, that um, validating the the standpoint or perspective that someone is coming from, um, particularly if they're coming from a population that's traditionally marginalized, I think is really important. Um, for the kid who isn't coming from that background, trying to figure out how does that fit within the context of what they're arguing, of, of their case. Um, how can they address their case to that? Um, perhaps showing that, you know, the, the amount of uh, detriment or whatever is being created in the circumstance of the resolution um, may not be as, I'm, I'm trying to think of the word here, may not be as of, of high a magnitude as uh, or, or scope, um, but they, they have to be really careful not to just outright dismiss and trivialize where that student is coming from. And, and in some cases, granting that that may be a personal experience of the opposition, but also that, you know, they, they can't, as in, in my example, as a white male, I'm not equipped to speak to that. And admitting that, too, can also be very powerful. You know, and, and I, I think the, the biggest thing that, that I would advise kids is if you're white, read about white fragility, read about what it means to be white, what privilege means, and figure out how to exercise that responsibly in your own arguments without trotting down on, on the opposition, if that makes sense. I, I think it does. And I, I'm thinking particularly a, a congressional debate round that ended up uh, the the bill, this was a local round at a regional tournament in North Carolina, where there was a bill about prison reform. And one student spoke, and it was very interesting to watch because it was, it was not a matter of ethnic uh, minority status or anything in this particular round. The student I'm thinking of, uh, he eventually explained that his father is currently in prison. And mm. that brought a whole different tenor to the round. And it was the first time I'd really encountered somebody bringing a personal perspective to what I expected to be an objective debate. But suddenly I was like, OK, hold on now, because that is particularly germane to this argument. That's not something that I, I've seen other rounds where people have. Uh, it strikes me as like they'll bring in a different narrative and it seems like a distraction from the issue at hand somehow. Uh, sure. And the, the trick becomes, okay, how do we get this debate back on track? But yeah. in that case, and I had to look, it made me completely reframe the round in my head. I was like, okay, hold on. I got to give this kid more credit because even if he's not citing sources necessarily, uh, he's thinking about his father's experience in prison. And that gives him a, a, that gives him a validity to speak to this issue that not everyone else has. Uh, right. So it, it becomes really dicey uh, in a lot of ways. I think the uh, it, it's not simply as it's not as simple as like students just kind of aha. Well, I'm going to mount my normal refutation. I have to kind of at least recognize. Okay, 
you're speaking from a particular place, and I need to recognize that place and then still be able to carry the debate on in some way. Correct, correct, absolutely. And and, and I've seen that more and more. I think it's becoming more and more, I don't know if trend is the right word, but a common practice mm. um, because I think students who are finding their, their identity and being able to connect with it through debate and have that discussion um, are finding that I think they're finding greater power in their lives, which is something we want to give them in this activity. Um, when my husband did his dissertation on the impact of this activity on students post-graduation, one of the recurring themes he's, he's seen um, as he's discussed in some of his articles is confidence. And so how do we find confidence for kids who are from traditionally marginalized populations mm. while not robbing students of non-marginalized populations of that same experience. And I think it's incumbent upon the students who come from a more privileged background to understand that they all, they always carry that privilege and that's okay. And, and they need to just listen to and, and validate their peers who don't so that they those peers are getting something out of the activity too, but that they can still win. They can still win by engaging in, in sound argumentation and logic and good evidence, you know, and, and a personal experience and background is, is just one example of a form of evidence. And at the end of the day, you know, if, if you have more hard evidence, you know, maybe the pathos of the personal experience may weigh in the judge, but then, and, and the ethos of that to some extent too, but, you know, maybe a volume of evidence that, that speaks to the opposing side could be just as valid. And I've sat there um, particularly in head-to-head -head debates where I have to judge on which side won. That's kind of the nice thing about Congress is you're looking at, at the, the individual students holistically, but when you're weighing which side should win, it can be tough sometimes. And I'll just sit there with my hands on my forehead, pouring over my flow, trying to figure out, okay, these are the voters that each side set up. And at the end of the day, I just have to figure out which, which side upheld their voters better. I think that was one of the biggest things I got from watching competition at a tournament at the Har at national circuit at the Harvard level. I was just seeing that at the end of the day, it there it's like the the same <coughs> kinds of techniques that we've drilled at local and regional tournaments. They're still what's happening at the national circuit level. They get some new names, they get applied in some different ways, but it's still a method of. How do I persuade the judge that my argument is stronger than my opponent? How do I bring my evidence to bear? And how can I move strategically to create future opportunities for my arguments while simultaneously limiting my opponents? Those are all the same things. It's just got a slightly different vocabulary to it, it seems. Right, right, yeah. And and it feels like the stakes are higher when you're at a, at a more competitive field, more diverse field in terms of the geographic um, scope of it. So, Certainly so. Well, uh, do, do, let's do think about that geographic scope for just a moment. I am kind of curious. I don't know much about what speech and debate looks like in Wisconsin. Tell us a little bit about what this looks like in your part of the country. Yeah, well, um, selfishly speaking, I, I, I like to say Wisconsin's birthplace of speech and debate. And I say that because the association I now run um, is, is one of the earliest um, to be founded in the country. It was founded in 1895. And then 
1925, the National Speech and Debate Association, then National Forensic League, was founded in Ripon, Wisconsin. And so there's there's a lot of rich, robust heritage here. Um, my association helped the founder of NSDA with the founding of that organization. Um, Pi Kappa Delta, the collegiate honorary, had been founded here in 1916 or thereabouts. So, you know, just a lot of rich heritage here. Um, but that also means that the uh, the the, the or organizationally, um, it's also very diverse and, and to some degrees, uh, to some degrees also divided. So um, we have the association I run, which has about 400 some uh, middle and high schools uh, across the state, um, especially in uh, rural areas. In the more urban areas of Milwaukee and Madison, there's a coach run association um, where, where it's run on kind of a volunteer basis. And they do weekly tournaments on an invitational level that culminate with a state tournament. Whereas in my system, we have a graduated qualification system and then um, you have to qualify to advance to the state event. And it's um, it's a little more um, sophisticated that way, but it's a lot less competitive, particularly in speech. We have a festival system in speech where the students are not ranked against each other. They're rated on a rubric and um, they have to get to different point thresholds, both to advance as well as to get certain awards at our state contest. So that's that's what we have. We have a split debate speech season, um, kind of like athletic seasons do. Um, different parts of the Midwest are, are just kind of unique in general. We have uh, some of the only staffed exclusively speech debate organizations in the country. So, for example, um, in Wisconsin, Iowa, and Michigan, um, the executive director of those associations is a full-time position. We have uh, an administrative assistant, uh, minimal. Uh, Michigan has, I think, an administrative assistant and an accountant. Um, but then states like uh, Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio have part-time uh, executive directors who get a modest stipend for their administrative services in running that association. And in all of these states, we are separate from the athletic association. So we have full autonomy to run what we do, but we're all affiliated with the National Federation of State High School Associations, which has been providing amazing, robust support for what they deem performing arts activities like ours. Um, my association also runs our one act play contest um, we're, we're adding a film festival as well, um, and, and Iowa does the same too. So um, it's it's just cool. In Wisconsin too, we also have eighteen different speech events between the two associations for speech, um, which is just insane. Everything from Did you say eighteen speech to radio news oh, announcing man. to. Um, well, that's kind of like just brainstorming in my mind here. We have a storytelling kind of like Nats does, but as a regular event. So we have a lot to offer. And I find that um, that helps attract more kids and keeps them engaged. Uh, and when I ran a full service program, I just told my kids, if you have higher aspirations, you need to do an event that translates to a national level event so that that'll work outside of Wisconsin. Um, and I had kids who, who went that track, and I had kids who were just fine doing their radio news reporting um, all four years of high school. They loved what they did, and um, for them, you know, they, they didn't have the high pressure that the kids were doing, and this DA and CFL and that whole alphabet soup of other opportunities that are out there. 
That's fantastic. That's that's kind of amazing. I'm like 18 events. That's 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 wow. That's just kind of blowing my mind. I but I, I get that that allure of those kind of just fun events uh, and the the competitive events have their own allure. But uh, I, I know in our circuit at least there are there's really four or five schools that end up taking home between 80 to 90 percent of the trophies. And then there's the rest of us who are thrilled. We, we all cheer for each other when anyone who's not in the big five manages to take home a trophy. Um, but it's it's still. Uh, but I remember one of my one of my favorite events that I did in uh, college forensics was uh, it was a storytelling event and it had nothing to do with Pi Kappa Delta Nationals that year. It was just in our local Midwest season. It was uh, it was at uh, Bowling Green State University. Put that one oh, on sure. and uh, I, I did a piece on uh, I, I went digging for the oldest fairy tale I could find to develop that and found out that apparently the Sleeping Beauty story goes back to the 16th century and there's a guy named Giambattista who uh, wrote down the first version of it in, in Italian and it's it's this gruesome tale that was I, I probably can't I'm not going to repeat much of the details on here because we have uh, we have some middle schoolers who at least do play our show I don't know if they actually listen to it but they they run our numbers up uh, but anyway it's those events though they're 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 only good for local tournaments, but they're so much fun to do. And they they at least always reminded me why I really enjoyed doing this. It wasn't just yeah. for the the acclaim or the shiny, but it really was for just love of kind of enjoyment and making other people enjoy this stuff too. Uh, what a great insight. What a great picture of kind of how this looks like in the Midwest. Tell me a bit more. You said a split season. Does that mean speech events are all in the fall and debate is in the spring? Or how, how does that what does that mean? Sure. So, yeah, we have our debate events in the fall, um, just like Minnesota and Kansas do. And, and I don't know off the top of my head if any other states split it like that, but um, that's uh, policy LDPF. And then in the and, and big questions has been taking off a little bit here um, for the fundraising. And then um, Congress and, and we'll talk about that later, I think. Um, but Congress runs in the spring on Friday nights, um, just prior to speech tournaments on Saturdays. So it's, it's kind of like, it's still its own thing, but it, it is grouped more with the speech season. And that's just the way it kind of evolved in our state. Um, at one time when it was just policy debate, Lincoln Douglas was grouped with the speech events in the spring because it was considered an individual event. And so that's kind of where our, our powers that be back in the day put it. And then when they realized, well, there's no reason we couldn't have LD alongside policy, it, it migrated there. And there have been attempts to have Congresses in the fall. They never make. It's just it's one of those things where the inertia and object in motion tends to want to stay in the motion and and the way it's been going. And so I, I even as idealistic as I was in my 20s, tried to run an all events speech and debate tournament all at one time. And we got like three schools um, to do speech during the debate season um, for that event. So I, I I walked away from that with my tail between my legs, but it was a good learning experience. I'm sure it was. And there there is there's a certain amount of uh, collegiality and collaboration that's necessary for this to work. I mean, it's yeah. there there it's it's there's. Trying to think. We we yeah. There's there's not really a good way to go it alone. If it's if you're kind of going against where where your region is going, 
Uh, well, that, that's probably a good uh, transition to, uh, to shift over to talking about Congress. Um, tell us about some of your kind of work in congressional debate. I know you're, you're involved with the, uh, the Harvard Debate Council, particularly in terms of Congress, but what else have you been working with in terms of congressional debate? Well, uh, I, I, I didn't do congressional debate as a student. I, I just did speech events. I didn't do debate either, um, oh, much to the chagrin of my, uh, my history teacher in high school, my, my U.S. history teacher. But, um, yeah, I, so I fell into Congress because the NSDA NAC Qualls tournament was coming up. And, uh, of course, anyone who's done Congress at NSDA knows that it's a numbers game where you need so many students participating in, in the House and so many schools who are doing the Senate to have numbers. And our district chair just basically said, you need to put X number of students in these rooms. You're allowed at X. Here's what you do. And I'm like, the first time we did districts, I'm like, well, I'm not just going to throw kids into something. I don't know what it is. So I went to, um, conveniently enough, a few weeks before districts, um, there was an invitational Congress right near our school at, at one of our neighboring schools. So I went to that one and I'm like, I love this. Uh, I was I was coaching at the time part time. My full time job was as a legislative aide to a city council member in the city of Milwaukee. And I'm like, this is just like the city council, but with a national scope. I love this. And so I told some of my students about it, particularly um, those who had done policy, those who were extempers, and they're like, oh, we love this idea. When can we go? Uh, a number of them did Model UN, which at the time was much more popular in our school, and it just ended up taking off. Uh, the school that I coached at um, for a majority of my career uh, also happens to be the one I graduated from and is uh, an international baccalaureate school. So that kind of liberal studies curriculum um, that, that brings together a lot of different disciplines and content areas where the students are thinking in, in a much more global manner um, is, is just an ideal setup, I think, for kids to have that kind of interest and to have the, the wide base of, of knowledge and interest to be able to be successful, too, in Congress. Because I think it takes a lot of versatility of, of an awareness of historical context, of how government works, how different governments work, how they work together, how different levels of government work, um, if we're thinking of federalism, um, different geopolitical dynamics internationally, um, and then how you relate all of that to how it affects American citizens, your, your theoretical constituents. And I always tell kids, you always have to delineate between the people you theoretically represent, that is your constituents, and the overall citizenry of the country that you also represent. And I think one mistake a lot of Congress kids make is they get into this kind of automatic thinking in their mind of these are the things you say. So like I'll count a kid saying the word constituent seven times in one three minute speech and they never say citizens or citizenry. And so they're not showing the connection between their own responsibility to their own regional district or state. But, you know, they're not thinking about the entire country and, and those kinds of things. So that that role playing mindset that that's a lot broader than they realize. And I think that's the other thing is is 
I really like to coach kids in Congress to be uh, adaptable and dynamic to a variety of different circumstances and situations. So, you know, the debate may be framed differently given the flow of what other students are saying. So to react to that and be adaptable to that and not just get stuck in their typical way of arguing. Um, and, and, you know, that, that they are not just a constructive speaker or just a refutational speaker, but they have to adapt to being able to speak at different points in the round. And so even before the NSDA created a pilot to limit the uh, time frame of debate to one third of a round, I was coaching my kids to deliberately speak at different positions in the round um, to be able to get different types of arguments out there and showcase their skill to judges with that. I think that's key because I've, I've seen one round in particular I'm thinking of was incredibly boring to watch as a judge. Uh, I, I don't know what happened. Uh, the, the, the debate gods frowned on me this season and declared that I should judge Congress for five weekends in a row across January and February. So uh, I, I got to see a lot of Congress this year, way more than normal. I'm, I've usually been an LD judge. I was an extemper in college and did one semester of parley. So uh, congressional debate, I, it, it's, I, I've come to appreciate it a lot more than I used to. I used to think it's like, these are debaters who don't like clash or they are speech kids who want to pretend they are debaters. It seemed to be like, but I, I've at least come to see it as its own different kind of debate. And that for me at least was a big turning point where I kind of started seeing the whole round in terms of the first two or three speakers are probably on a bill or should be introducing the main information in the round. But by golly, as soon as somebody turns to start refuting that's key because the rest of the next 20 to 45 minutes really ought to be clash and discussion, extending arguments. Uh, we ought to get some framework type statements out. And then uh, it's kind of key. There's those last like two speakers on each side of a bill. Usually there's only two sides. Sometimes there's an outlier, but usually just those two. And someone, and then they have to kind of figure out when strategically, how do they use the rules of precedence? to strategically be the right person to stand up, draw it to a close, and convince the room that everything that sh can be said has in fact been said. And there, there's an art to this game of congressional debate that oh, yeah. there's, and there's a, there's a sense of collaboration about it too, that I find really positive. Um, I, I love the, the, the well, when it, when it's done well, and when both pe both sides in a, a in an LD or PF round, because we don't really have policy in our area yet, I think that might be coming in in years mm -hmm. to come. But when you have well matched teams that just are both at equal levels and they just go for it, there's something beautiful and warlike about these these. Uh, I'm thinking like there's a line from either Job or the Aeneid, where it's like the 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 horses prepared for war. Like that, that's what that, those kind of teams make me think of. But Congress isn't like that. It's like we have 18 to 24 strangers uh, who may or may not know each other from last weekend's tournament, but they're really strangers and they have to collaborate together to theoretically, uh, I don't know if it was you or somebody else. I read the letter from Harvard sent out before the tournament about don't go collaborate on Facebook groups before the tournament and don't, don't rig the round. But theoretically, in that moment, they have to come together and decide what they're going to do. And there's there's a sense in which the group wins 
one way or the other, which is yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, and I, I, I love, 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 Josh, that you've divined that, that, that beautiful fact about the activity. And I think that's the thrill that I love about it. And, and case in point, I was in New York City, I don't know, eight, year, eight to ten years ago. I was working for NSDA at the time, and the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues had just started doing a national championship event. And they were holding it in Manhattan. I was a guest of theirs, you know, as, as part of the NSDA partnership to give memberships to um, Urban Debate League schools. And um, I, I had just taken a break in between rounds and was walking uh, to Times Square from the, the facility we were at for the debates. And I hear this, Jacoby, Jacoby. And I turn around. And in the, our nation's busiest crossroads are two former congressional debaters, one from the Chicago area and one from the Boston area, who I knew were good friends when they were in high school. And they, one of them worked for the New York City Department of Education at the time. The other was just visiting. And they had gone down to Times Square because there was some kind of rally for Armenians. And they wanted to see what it was about, you know, and, and so it was just it was really cool that here were two kids from different parts of the country and a coach from another state, you know, who had parlayed their rounds a couple of times when they were in high school. And and all three of us had, had just shared that moment of, of kind of a, a reunion, so to speak. And, and that's the beautiful thing is that these kids forge these friendships uh, because they are working collaboratively, as you said, to solve problems. And even when they're not on the same side on one bill, they might be on the same side on the next and might play off each other's arguments really well. And, and the kids love that intellectual pursuit. And, and you know, Congress is one of those events that, that a lot of coaches say falls between speech and debate. And, and so, you know, if you think about the, the very polished, oratorical rhetoric that, that congressional debaters often use. It's because I would argue that Congress was the original layperson's event, even before for head-to-head -head debate, uh, the powers that be felt the need to create public forum as an alternative to uh, policy and Lincoln Douglas because they had, they felt those had become too expert. So public forum was created and I was standing there saying, well, what about Congress? And I think as public forum becomes a little more sophisticated over time, Congress still remains that event that any person can go in the room and should be able to listen to the arguments students are given, giving. And as a citizen that would be listening, listening to theoretical representatives of theirs legislating, they should be able to understand what those kids are saying. And so that, that, that pathos that the kids are, are using in their rhetoric, I think, still gives Congress that cachet as a somewhat speaking event. But the clash that has to exist, as you were um, so artfully describing before, um, still functions as a debate event. Um, but what's really interesting, as I was explaining this to someone the other day, is that it operates as a speech event because the kids are ranked comparatively as they are in speech in those cumulative ranks. Um, determine who advances and how they place because, you know, and, and a good coach friend of mine um, previously um, from Illinois once thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we gave um, 
the kids who had spoken AF, if, if the AF side wins um, the vote after the debate, if they each got an extra point or something. You know, and, and that was an interesting thought for a hot minute. And then when, when you realized, well, sometimes kids just give a speech affirmatively or negatively because that's what, what's available. Because there's a finite number of speaking positions. And so that's kind of arbitrary. And, and, you know, a good debater should be prepped on both sides, not necessarily what they perceive as the one that's going to help them win an extra point. So anyway. Well, I'd love to uh, hear your thoughts on, like, how do you how you coach kids to prep for Congress? Because that's honestly something that uh, my team has struggled with because we'll we'll get our packet of bills uh, usually 10 days before the tournament. So we've got two school weeks to prepare. And uh, my kids are looking at that. And uh, there's usually five. I've got five kids that did a lot of Congress this year. And. Mm -hmm across 11th, 10th, and 9th grades. And my 11th graders are generally fine. They they accurately predict, okay, out of the 10 bills that are in this packet, I think these four are going to be probably these two are the top in chamber one, these two are the top in chamber two. I'm going to prep one of these first and then the second one. If I have time, I'll prep a third speech. And they, uh, my ninth graders are hopelessly optimistic about their ability to research and write speeches. They just need more time. But I'm wondering more for those students who accurately do judge them, judge that, like, how do you speed up prep time for Congress? Because, I mean, they're just, I, I, I see the other kids and I'm thinking either one of two things is happening. Either the team has prepped a set of speeches and everybody has the team speeches that they're just like sort of tweaking in their drive files. Or yeah. these kids are super geniuses and are way smarter than my kids, which I hope isn't true. I don't think that's the case. Or something – or these kids are just that good and they know everything and can give speeches on any bill seemingly at the drop of a hat. Well, uh, so I, I've done a variety of things because I also coached at my husband's former school um, for a couple of years as, as Congress squad. And, and 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 that was a squad of like four or five kids. So I can relate to that number, too, and, and distributed across grade levels. So um, I, I also agree that the ninth graders are always just going to be deer in the headlights. And every so often you'll have that gifted one that'll just be a go getter. You know, maybe they, they had the opportunity to do middle school, and, and so they, they kind of get the mindset coming in, which I will tell you, as, as much as I, I shepherded and fostered growth and everything with my kids, my most successful kids, my former national champions, always got their start in middle school. Mm -hmm. And so anytime we had a kid win a major tournament like NSCA or whatever, I made a point to reach out to their middle school coach to say, this is the spark you started. So anyway, a little, little tangent there. But um, in terms of prep for Congress, the, the tried and true method that has worked for me is what I call little research briefs. So on each topic of legislation, the kids kind of brief out what they think are the strongest pro and con arguments. Um, and they essentially create little cards, you know, of, of this is the argument. Here's, here's a source that, that backs it up statistic quotation, you know, so they have a little bit of variety. Um, and, and I had kids who had certain interest areas. So, you know, depending on how the docket spread out different topics, they would claim different topics and then they would do some of that, 
that research. They were never fully realized speeches, so to speak. And I would never allow students to share introductory material or anything like that so that they would be forced to make it their own. And then what I would do after they would brief these topics is we'd come together and we'd have a discussion. And each kid who briefed would give, would do kind of a micro teaching lesson to the others about what that topic entailed. So they had to kind of describe it in their own words for their peers, which also forced them to become more familiar with it. Because any of us in education know when you have to turn around and teach somebody else, you do a better job of learning it yourself. Um, and then the, the, the kids who'd be listening would be taking notes and be cross-referencing on a copy of the research brief. So then they could go and do further research. So my more advanced kids would take the briefs that their peers had done and then dive a little bit deeper once they had a functional knowledge or understanding of it. Um, and then the, the kids who original, originated the briefs would keep working on them after they had shared them with their peers. Um, and further develop them out themselves. So that that approach really seemed to work. That does entail having a squad of at least a handful of kids to be able to kind of share that task. Um, but you, I, I'd also make sure that extempers would be keeping up to date on things because a lot of Congress topics are ripped from the headlines. Mm -hmm. So if a team has a good extemp file, um, that translates over to at least some current periodicals to kind of get the Congress get started. And then just in general, in terms of preseason prep and all that kind of stuff, and what I do at camp is just making sure that the kids are well-read on theoretical information, like theories of governing, you know, so that they, they understand the premise behind a social contract and how that applies in congressional debate. And, you know, a lot of those things that we often put in the bucket of Lincoln Douglas you know, as, as being kind of a value construct, but underlie the, the mm -hmm. framework of how congressional debaters are thinking about issues and topics and, you know, uh, theories of, of, of different uh, approaches to different things like Keynesian economics and all those kinds of things. So especially as a kid gets advances through high school and learns more in their curricular classes, that figuring out how those those pieces of information also can help them apply that directly to congressional debate. We've seen a huge, uh, that last point, we've seen a lot, I've seen a lot of this year because I, I teach our 11th grade philosophy and ethics class and uh, my best LD students are juniors this year and they are, uh, they've been running Kant for two years and, and now they've actually read some Kant <laughs> and suddenly they're there. They can make a Kantian environmental framework stick in a way that they never could before. And they, they can run, uh, we, we've stayed away from trying to run Nietzsche, but there was one other big one we ran. Um, we finally, like we haven't, we're, we're still in like the 1940, 40s or so. Uh, so we haven't gotten to John Rawls in the course, but they are because of how much actual philosophy they've been studying. Suddenly, like the the structural framework of what Rawls is doing was so comprehensible to them, and I, I can see a lot of the value you're describing in Congress. I mean, it's I've, I've seen at least one round where uh, the students who won. The round, at least one my ballot on the round, were the ones who properly understood, who actually understood the way the different branches of government work. And yeah. they, they recognized that 
we can't just ignore the executive branch. There's a certain thing the legislature does, and there's a certain thing the executive does. Other kids are just over there like, oh, yeah, we can do whatever we want. Like, no, no, you can't. Like, And, and the kids who actually under – and then someone else brought up the Constitution, and I was so excited. I was like, oh, man. And then someone else brought it up correctly, and I was even more excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well – uh, any any other advice you would offer as far as thoughts about congressional debate? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I there, there's uh, there's I, I think one thing that plagues our activity is for congressional debaters. Some of them are like, I love to preside. That's my thing. Some of them are like, I love to write bills. That's my thing. Like, I, I, I think it's just good for any kid to be able to have all of the skills across the event so that they're versatile and they may be better at some things than others. Um, but I think that every kid should be able to do every skill in the event to fully understand it, you know, and, and uh, I was just helping review some legislation for Nats and I, I always, I, I take a look at something that's written as a resolution and I think, okay, this is a debater who loves to argue as debaters do and so they wrote a resolution so they could argue through the whereas clauses, but it really should have been a bill because they, they talk about a certain amount of funding and all that kind of stuff. And, and the analogy I use is a well-written bill is like a policy debate plan text. It outlines the who, what, when, where, and how you're going to do something, but stop short of the why. A resolution is all about the why and then resolves to take some further action. And, you know, I, I've learned over the years to just kind of, eh, I'm just going to let it slide and the kids can debate the intent of what that resolution or as some would say a bill illusion or, you know, that kind of thing is, is attempting to do um, without getting too caught up in the fact that it's the wrong format. Um, and you'll hear that what is the equivalent of a generic argument in Congress is that, well, this is a resolution, so it doesn't really do anything. OK, it took me all of five seconds to say that. But where is the real argumentation of me opposing this because of its face value and, and you know, beyond its face value, perhaps? So, you know, I think that's important. And, you know, but just making sure that the kids are as, as crisp as they can be. And, and that's the other thing is, is when it comes to parliamentary procedure, understanding how that is a framework upon which debate happens. Um, if debate is going really well and you're really engrossed in the intellectualism of it, the parliamentary procedure should be hardly noticeable. It's just there. It just happens. It allows for debate to happen. Um, but it, it also can help right wrongs when somebody in the room is being treated unjustly. Um, it can help bring structure to chaos, you know, especially at local meets where students are less experienced and comfortable with it. The students who have that experience and can lead get some really valuable leadership experience out of it. And I'll never forget it was such a seminal moment for me as a newer coach in Congress. When a kid came up from another school, I had no idea who they were, but they knew who I was because I had been judging. And they're like, Mr. Jacoby, your students are so OCD when it comes to parliamentary procedure. And my immediate reaction as, as the teacher was, oh, no, you know, like, who are they too, like, anal retentive to? 
And I'm like, oh, I hope they weren't rude about it. And they're like, no, no, we love when your students preside because everything runs really well and we don't have to worry about it. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> as, as the adult, you worry, you know, worst case so scenario. True. In this case, it turned out to be a compliment. Um, and, and I was really proud of that. So. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. The, the first time I judged Congress, uh, I was uh, I was voluntold that I was judging Congress because they had enough LD judges. So the overflow is like, congratulations, Michelle Boswell is going to train you all on how to do Congress now. Good good luck. And my first, I, I didn't really understand the role that the presiding officer played, and I was kind of skeptical about the 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 rule that we were pretty strongly told like. If your PO does a good job, your PO really should be in your top. I think we were ranking the top eight that day or something, but in your in your breaking students into the next round. And my first round, I was like, okay, PO was fine. And it was kind of like you were describing. I didn't really notice the PO because she did a – she was fair. She was clear. The round was fine. I got into the, the round after lunch, and all these kids – yeah, as a teacher, you can walk in the room and you know that like the kids are kind of in control of that room instead of the adult. That's where I walked in and there's a I think the parley was a recently graduated student who was back on break. Mm-hmm. And the I'm there with an older lady as we're we're judges just sitting in the back, marking our ballots, and turns out these kids have elected their friend <laughs> to be PO and their friend is gonna let everybody have a good time. And I suddenly realized, like, oh, my goodness, the P.O. is honestly, without a strong P.O., you really have no leadership. And the round cannot happen without someone enforcing the basic structure of the round. And that's that is a vital, vital role. Uh, And and it really becomes a fun game to sort of pretend that you are speaking in this guise of uh, point of personal privilege. And uh, I forget the phrase to go to the bathroom and come back. But that, that one always makes me chuckle. Uh, it's it's uh, my students at least really they enjoy the parliamentary procedure part. It's it's really kind of fun. Yeah, and and I'm always very exacting when I coach a presiding officer. Like I'll, I'll, it's amazing. Like every year at camp, I'll have kids come in who are experienced. Some have been really successful, and then we do my parliamentary procedure lecture, and they're like, I didn't realize I had so many bad habits. You know, because they they just they they have a lot of excess verbiage and, you know, a lot of, of things that they don't need to say. Like you'll hear a kid say, seeing as how that was a speech and affirmation, we're now in line for a speech and negation. All negative speakers, please rise. I'm like, all you need to say after you excuse the previous speaker is negative speakers, please rise. Like it's, we're all keeping track. Right. And so it's just one of those bad habits because they hear other people say it and then they think they have to say it. And it's just one. And even my most successful student ever who won Nats twice, once as a presiding officer, went to Harvard for undergraduate, went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Like one of her judges when she was a sophomore said, does she have three brains? Uh, just phenomenal student. At Nats, I hear her presiding and she says, seeing as how we have a rolling docket, we're now moving on to the next item on the agenda. And I, I asked her after the round, what is a rolling docket? Oh, something cool I heard in one of the prelims, so I just decided to use it. I'm like, there is no such thing as a rolling docket. It's, that must be some regional thing that some kid from another state used, you know, and it's an agenda, and you just take up the next item. It's not a big deal. Oh, and that, <laughs> that seems – chuckle about it. That, that really does seem to be the way this sort of goes. I mean, every time we go to a tournament, I – 
feel like my kids are taking what I've taught them. They're trying it out in the field. And they're also, my best students are always learning from everyone else around them. And generally, they're learning good things. I know uh, one of my top students picked up, he started talking to some policy kids at Harvard. And he came and was like, Mr. Herring, this is the best flow ever. I've got a much better way to flow a lot faster with fewer words. And uh, it's kind of amazing how... Uh, I, I one of the things I enjoy about tournaments is that there's a sense in which when I'm judging, the advice I'm giving is either confirming or denying what the coaches have given to their kids and their programs, and the same thing's happening to my kids. So it's as if, like, across the state, across the country, we're all sort of collaborating to try to create the best result in communication with all of these students. Agreed. Well, uh, Adam, I'm looking at our time. I know we probably need to start wrapping this up. Um, let me ask you at least a couple of last questions. Um, I know we're, uh, we're recording this at the beginning of May, so it's the beginning of the last debate resolution cycle of this year. Uh, I just want to see if you had any thoughts on strategy for PF and LD on nationals. The uh, LD resolution reads, the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. And then we've got PF, uh, on balance, charter schools are beneficial to the quality of education in the United States. Any thoughts on those resolutions that you might share with our, our listeners? Well, I, I think they're fascinating topics. Um, I've, I've done a lot of reading um, just leisurely because I'm a debate person and I'm a geek and I'll admit it, um, about how the United States in some people's estimation, has become more of an oligarchy than a democracy. And, and the, the influence of, of wealth, the influence particularly of, of a, a small group of wealthy individuals uh, and of corporations. And, and I've read about how the Citizens United case um, that's happened in the last decade that has basically granted corporate personhood has really influenced you know, the, the accumulation of wealth and what that means. But I also think that there's some, um, I think there's a silver lining. And, and I think that the, the current highly uh, polarized political climate we're in has brought out the best in the free market in some respects. And what I mean by that is, is if you look at how some corporations have reacted to different social movements. And this one's very personal for me because as a gay man, um, my identity defines a lot of, of what I do in my personal life in terms of buying decisions. And I, and I try to make sure, you know, uh, there's a classic fast food restaurant that was very opposing to um, my identity. And so I didn't patronize them for a long time. And, and so, you know, those kinds of things. And, and a lot of companies have come out in support of people like me and and much to the vitriol of, of people who oppose my identity. And so it's created an interesting conversation from a democratic standpoint that I think is something that we're not always thinking of at face value. You know, we all, often think of the bottom line of what does a democracy mean? How does free market capitalism interplay with democracy? Um, how, you know, and, and if you look at, at the, our nation's history of business, I think it's really important to look at the history of corporations and how corporate charters were granted and what a corporate charter had to do in the public trust. And, and that public trust is a term of art 
that that means that there's a certain trust in that corporation to be chartered by the government to be able to operate in a particular state and, and, and nationally. And what does that mean in terms of, of being the responsible corporate citizen within our democracy? And how could that wealth be done for good? And there's tons of examples of philanthropists like Bill Gates and, and whatnot that, you know, I, I don't know that that there's there's intentionally an intergenerational link there, but I, I, I you know, because I, I I don't know. I haven't researched it to a yeah. great degree, but I, I definitely think that there's more than meets the eye here. And it might be easy to think that this resolution is tilted in one way more than another. But I think that you have to just dig for what, you know, the the relationships are between capitalism and democracy and 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 on wealth and oligarchy and democracy and, and, and those kinds of things, if that makes any sense. I, I think so. I, that's interesting. I had not thought about the, the, the corporate personhood aspect here. Like I looked at that and I, 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 I saw intergenerational and I think I still see intergenerational as be, making that primarily about personal property rights. And mm-hmm. that this is a resolution that at least at, at a first reading, and this is not an area of any expertise of mine or deep reading, uh, right. But it seems to me this this lends itself to a I'm seeing a pretty easy uh, uh, an AF plan about a 100 percent inheritance tax that then is used to support a an infinitely expansive social security or social net social safety net kind right. of kind of approach. And uh, Neg would I would see Neg as going pretty much all in on saying that uh, if we affirm this, we've destroyed the incentive to actually earn anything because the real motivation for earning property is passing that on in some planned way and affirming this. I'm trying to, I don't have the right word for this. It's not like a standard K that I've seen. I want some sort of human nature or uh, historical K where we're like the affirm, the AF world here requires the destruction of a, uh, a tie that has bound the human family together for as long as we have recorded history and that that really means it's a terrible idea. We should not affirm this. Like I want I want somehow to see that, but I I'd not thought about the corporate personhood aspect. That that's a different angle on this one. Um, well, and isn't the Windsor family the the reigning royal family of England? And what does that mean for oh. the democracy in the United Kingdom? Like <laughs> I, I think oh. there there are interesting examples if if we're looking at history because. That is a long history of democracy operating under a monarchy that is intergenerational. That wow. lends itself to an interesting example. That's very true. Any thoughts on the uh, charter school resolution? Yeah, um, I, I have. I, this is something where I have a certain degree of personal experience. I was on a charter school steering committee when I lived in Ripon, Wisconsin. Um, Wisconsin has has had a long heritage of charter schools, but particularly here, they've been public charters for the most part. So a lot of the private, like the basis and the big conglomerate mm-hmm. ones, um, I don't have a lot of familiarity with. But I've been to the National Association for Public School Charters Conference in Washington, D.C., heard Pitbull speak, which was interesting. He's a big backer of a charter school in Florida. Um I think as somebody who's been involved in the charter school movement firsthand, I will say that the original intention of charter schools was to create laboratories 
by which best practices, new practices of education could be tested and then rolled out en masse to the larger community of, of, of PK-12 education. I, in reality, I don't necessarily think that that has happened. I think there have been a lot of failed charters, um, either because they're failed exper experiments or they're failed in terms of the oversight and accountability. Mm. Um, because there's, there's been a certain degree of, of controversy and, and abuse of, of monies and things like that that have happened. So um, I, I think there's a lot of ground on both sides for debate here. Um, I, I also, interestingly enough, taught in what would be the equivalent of a charter school in the People's Republic of China. Oh, wow, interesting. All schools in China, by law, are governed by the party because it's a communist country. But um, they are looking at countries like the United States. And it's funny, like, you know how for years we've said we have to do something to improve education here because Chinese students are beating all our students in test scores, right? Meanwhile, over there, they're like, what can we do to help our students innovate better like the American kids are doing? Because our kids are acing the the, the uh, expository information that they need to have, and they're doing really well in math and science. But when it comes to creative thinking and problem solving, they're falling flat on their face when they get into the career field. So it's interesting that the grass is always greener on the other side of the, the fence, but that the the Chinese have been actively looking at reforming their schools. And mm -hmm. so one of the schools that, that I taught at was a partnership between the local communist party and some private businesses in that particular area. And what would be the equivalent of a business park. Um, and the, the school even bore the name of the solar company that was the major corporation right near the school. And it's, it's how, you know, China has, has becoming more and more capitalist in terms of its market mm -hmm. um, with, with the authoritarian rule of the Communist Party still in play. So it's a really interesting dynamic. But I, I think what I would encourage coaches and debaters to do on this topic is realize that the United States is certainly the focal point of the topic, but they can look at what other countries have done in educational reforms with the equivalent of charters for different perspectives. That's a that's an interesting take on it. Uh, I'd not thought about the, the the Chinese kind of focus on there is really interesting. It's, uh, North Carolina has had a we've we've had a lengthy history of charter schools. I mean, we've had them since the late 1990s. Uh, my school was actually founded when uh, the state would not give our founder a second charter. He filled out uh, he filled the first charter for Franklin Academy, and then he went back to say, "Okay, we we got this running. We want we're good now. We want to open a second charter." And they're like, "Eh." They'd had a change in leadership, and they were not mm -hmm. giving out charters, so he opened private schools instead. And those have now become very successful. But uh, I, it, it, I think you're right about it. it has a lot to do with the, the people. I don't know that I would use the language of oversight as much as like leadership there. But if you have good people in charge, charter schools can be very helpful. And they yeah. certainly can create new opportunities. Uh, that there, There's a lot of places that have – uh, uh, teacher unions and school boards are sort of entrenched and are not looking at innovative solutions to longstanding problems. Charters can bring a whole lot of new opportunity to areas that seem to have kind of fixed educational outcomes. Yeah. But uh, there was one that we had one group that I think that the difference between public and private is really interesting. So we had a private charter company from out in Arizona that came out to our area in Wake County last year 
And they uh, they were very enticing to a lot of teachers, and uh, they were sort of headhunting amongst existing schools in our county to say, hey, why don't you come over to us? We're going to build this big, beautiful building. Man, their plan, they were going to come. These are two guys from Arizona who are going to come to North Carolina. They were selling this story in – what month are we in now? We're in May. They were selling this story in February that by uh, – Set, no, by August, they were going to buy the land, get the permits, build the buildings, and open in August. And open K-8, I think is what they were going to do. It was absurd. And these guys had no experience teaching. They'd not been principals. I, it was just a mess waiting to happen. And they did not get their – they got the charter – but the charter had to be – they had to demonstrate enough interest to put the charter into place, and they were not yeah. able to do it. So in that sense, it was certainly not beneficial <laughs> to our local well, education here. And I, and I think the, the real challenge with this topic, there is so much information uh, supporting efficacy of charter schools and so much information debunking the efficacy of charter schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in large part you will find that many of the studies in favor of charter schools – have cherry-picked their information and were funded by charter school backers. And a lot of the studies against were, in in some cases, funded by pro-public education interests. So, you know, as with all things in evidence, you just have to be really careful and and look at the methodologies of the study, how they were funded, and all those kinds of things to, to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, as it were. Well, being able to evaluate uh, evidence is at least it's one of the pieces I see as being a big difference between novice and varsity debaters because mm-hmm. novice debaters are just evidence, any evidence. Oh, look, I have a card. And yep. varsity debaters have figured out, I want to read your card. I want to see if that surrounding paragraph has anything to do with what you just said in the round. And being able to distinguish that seems pretty key. Uh, well, Adam, as uh, one last question, as somebody who has who is very familiar with local, regional, national competition, uh, what advice would you offer students who are looking to make a move in their competitive ability from uh, maybe being pretty solid on the regional circuit and wanting to look at national competition? What advice would you offer as that kind of a student? Well, I'll offer the advice that, that I offer in the summer at the Harvard Debate Workshop, and that's that um, – Figure out what you want to get out of this activity. And it, uh, talk about coming full circle from talking about all the different events in Wisconsin and the non-national focused events and then the national uh, aligned events. And really it comes down to how committed is the student going to be? Because obviously the higher the stakes and the, and the bigger the scope of competition, the more work you have to put into it. I mean, there's, there's a direct correlation there. And so figuring out what what is feasible for them, I think um, reminding them that there's a difference between chasing trophies and bids and going out there to learn and better oneself. And then the trophies and bids come as a byproduct of that. And so mindfulness has always been a big focus of mine um, with students, particularly the more competitive they are, I think the more mindful they have to be. So a lot of strategies that, that I've used with students is having them keep reflective journals where, where they're constantly thinking about what they want to get out of the activity. You know, I, there's all that research that says when you write something down, you commit to it better. You're able to, to kind of process in your mind your goals. So always kind of assessing goals, reassessing goals for their feasibility, um, reflecting on feedback that we get from judges, 
um, reflecting on what we see other students, competitors doing in terms of tactics. And will that work for me? You know, being true to oneself. Talk about, I, I think, my main mantra when it comes to mindfulness. It's that, you know, it's easy for a kid to want to be like the successful kid, but that may not work for their personality. That might not work for their their toolbox, you know, that their what their knowledge base is. And they may try to run an argument that they don't quite understand and then fall flat on their face. So it's, it's taking some ownership, I think, is really important. Um, yeah, and I, and I think remembering that traveling to other tournaments, to other states, to big tournaments is more than about just getting a trophy out of it. It's about forging relationships and friendships. And really, I, I think the, the, the real nice way to put a bow on all this is as we navigate this post-COVID-19 pandemic world of speech and debate, we're going to have to defend the legitimacy of holding in-person brick-and-mortar contests down the road after it becomes really apparent how convenient and cheap and accessible the virtual tournaments are. And, and legitimizing that there's no substitute in terms of a socio-emotional standpoint for that in-person interaction that kids have, the friendships that they build, the going out to restaurants, you know, that, that they may not have access to in their local community and learning how to have a, a fancy meal and, you know, learning how to stay in a hotel and travel and, and, you know, all those different things that we take for granted once we start doing it, but are really important portable skills for kids to have, you know, and just being exposed to different cultures and different parts of the country, I think is, is really helpful. So. Well, thank you for that advice, Adam. I think those are some great uh, words of wisdom to to close us out on. Uh, I think you're absolutely right about the uh, this is going to put a whole new spin on. I've, I've seen lots of coaches talking about what is my budget proposal going to look like for 2020, 2021? Uh, are, is Yale happening in person? Is it going to be virtual? Uh, I put my proposal in before we had all of this, and I am hoping uh, I still haven't heard back about it, but I'm, I'm, I'd love for us to start an annual pattern of kind of Yale and Harvard as our two national circuit tournaments, one in the fall, one in the spring. Uh, we're, we're still not a school that is going to kind of be looking at national competition as kind of our main thing. But I love the idea of students being able to see what this looks like at the highest level at an invitational tournament. And then if they want to then say, OK, I'm going to set this goal for next year. NSDA Nats, TOC, that's where I want to be. We can start working to make that happen. Uh, and, but how we get there and what that looks like after all this is over and stay at home is lifted, who knows? Yeah. And, and I, I also want to really commend you for, for that approach. When I was coaching, even well into my coaching career and success of, of my students at the NSD National Tournament and, and Harvard, we just stayed a mostly locally focused school that happened to go to Harvard because it was easy to make the case to go to a city that has like more universities and, and high caliber universities per capita than, than almost anywhere else. And then we went to Glenbrooks, which was a 75 minute drive for us, which was closer than traveling across the state of Wisconsin in some cases. So, you know, we, we had the convenience of that national circuit tournament uh, fairly close and proximate, 
But uh, yeah, and you know what? What's funny is um, Wisconsin doesn't have many teams that travel, so even with that limited amount of travel, we were considered the the elite school that would go to those national things and. You know, but I found that especially when I would take younger kids along that may not be competitively successful, that kind of jumping in the deep end of the pool when they then come back locally, they would dominate. And so that was that was really helpful for them to kind of light a fire and, and ignite them competitively. I, I think that's I think there's a lot of truth to that. I know uh, uh, I've, I've honestly come to I've come to coaching kind of the. I guess so you could call it the unintentional route. I, I did a lot of this. I fell into this activity mostly because the registrar in college signed me up for uh, an elective I didn't know existed. And then uh, I wanted to keep this going at my school. And uh, my little bit of debate experience in college and love of extemp was more than anybody else had. So that made me the guy on our campus. And I've been kind of figuring it out as we go since then. But I mean, uh, I went to a tiny little conservative liberal arts college called Hillsdale College in Michigan, and uh, it we ended up uh, we always had we always kind of saw ourselves as the underdog. We were never Ball State or Bradley or University of Kentucky. Uh, those were always the big boys. We always we had a uh, tournament uh, Marietta College in Ohio. We would go to every year. That was the tournament. If you didn't break it anywhere else. You could break at Marietta's, pretty pretty much a set, guaranteed tournament to go to, and then you qualify for nationals. And our, our coaches, I uh, have to credit, uh, James Brandon was our director of forensics. Um, oh, goodness, Matt Warner was our uh, forensics coach. And then uh, Jeremy Christensen was the debate coach, uh, with then Matt Doggett taking over for him. All four of those guys did a great job, always kind of casting this vision of, the goal of what we're doing is to go and compete with excellence and we're going to do the best we can do. And they knew that for some of us, that meant excellence men, you got to have your eye on NFA or, mm-hmm. or, um, uh, the other one, NFA. No, there's yeah, another NFA, big, NIT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big, uh, the big two college ones, uh, uh then back in 2010, but I don't remember the other acronym or, or Pi Kappa Delta was kind of, those were our three nationals that we sort of rotated around, Uh, But for most of us, that just meant that did not mean being excellent meant we did well at our tournaments and we enjoyed ourselves. And I've kind of brought that approach to what we're doing at Thales. And it's been really cool to see uh, we're we're five years into having a program. And uh, we now I've now got kids who are going to be I've got my my first senior who started this in middle school is graduating this year. We've got. We'll have a few more next year. I'll have three senior varsity members, and I, I'm expecting like, oh man, next year is going to be pretty exciting. So uh, it's it's been really great to to watch their journey. Yeah, yeah. Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Uh, is there uh, any place people could go to kind of follow your work or follow you on various social media platforms? Yeah, uh, on Twitter is the easiest. I'm just Adam Jacoby on there. A- um, my first and last name. Um, uh, I, I'm on Facebook too, A. Jacoby. Uh, there, uh, LinkedIn. I'm I'm on there. So I I I, I cultivate the 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 big three that most uh, adults do. I've tried Instagram and failed at it. I can't um, do Instagram. My my students do Instagram. I don't do Instagram. 
Yeah. I think if I was coaching full time still, I'd probably be forced to do it because that might be the only way I could reach some kids because nobody does email anymore among Generation Z. But <laughs> Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight for this interview. Uh, my guest has been Adam Jacoby, and uh, it's been a joy to learn more about Wisconsin speech and debate, uh, congressional debate, some strategy thoughts for LD and PF. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard tonight, do feel free to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. We do prefer those five-star reviews, just in case there was any doubt. And if you want to get in touch with us, uh, pass on any questions or any feedback, you can do that in a variety of ways. You can reach out to us over email at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can find us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at whatstheres underscore. And then you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstheres. We'll be back next time with more resolution analysis. Until then, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. Mm-hmm.